Father, we're grateful for your love for us, that you love us so much that even while we were your enemies, you sent Christ to die for us. May we be reminded of that love today, and God, I pray that that love, your love for us, would continue to change us more and more into the people you want us to be. So help us now as we look at your word. Would you fill us with your spirit that we might bring honor and glory to you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here at Cornerstone, we're going through a, a month-long sermon series where we're looking at Matthew chapters 1 through 7, the first seven chapters of the first gospel of the New Testament. And we're at the place now where we've entered into the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7 are the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded speech from Jesus we have anywhere in the world. And again, we have the privilege of holding it in our hands. And I hope it's been changing you, not just as you come here and listen, but as you've been reading it for yourselves at home and, and letting God's words sink in. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus addressed six issues regarding Old Testament and the interpretation of Old Testament law. And in each case, what Jesus did is he addressed a faulty, only mere surface-level interpretation of that law in favor of the, the deeper, the heart issue that God wanted us to know. So whether we're talking about murder or lust or love for enemies, Jesus wants to get at the heart issue and explain to us what it is, that, how we should be living. And, and really, again, as we look at these, uh, anything in what Jesus says, it, we should understand to approach it with this idea of, I'm not trying to justify myself. I'm not just trying to look at Jesus' words and say, yeah, I do that right, I do that right, and I do that right. In fact, I think as we look at these six issues that Jesus addressed, rather our heart issue should be to look at it and say, oh, I may be doing that one wrong. Jesus, I'm sorry for that. Would you please help me? I, I think that's the heart issue behind this because actually one of the ways that we should understand Matthew chapter 5 is that we are all sinners. It's not like Jesus came to separate the people who didn't get it at all from the people who kind of got it. It's that we're all in the same category of people who in and of ourselves are weak and sinful. And we need Jesus' teaching. We need the power of God to transform us. So what we see here then is God himself pointing out the heart issues, the things that we should be getting at. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the fourth, fifth, and sixth of these six issues that Jesus tackled in Matthew chapter 5 regarding the Old Testament and how it should be properly understood. So Jesus has three topics today and we're going to have three topics today. And again, if you're going to realize, which you know, for all of us, we should be checking our hearts. And, and if something comes up today and you look at your heart, just please know there's forgiveness in Christ and, and there's strength from God to live the life that he wants you to live. So three topics today. The first one is oaths from verses 33 to 37. Jesus said, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now in verse 33, there are several places in the Old Testament that Jesus could be alluding to. One of them, perhaps, would be Deuteronomy 23:21, which says this, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. 
So the point there in the Old Testament was to say, if you made an oath, you need to keep it. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day, in, in trying to follow simply the letter of the law, they said, well, okay, if you make an oath to the Lord, then you need to keep that one. But they said, well, maybe if you make some other kind of an oath, but not to the Lord, then maybe it's okay to break that one. And it kind of reminds me of the little kid who says, sure, Mom, I'll mow the lawn. Ha <laughs> ha, fingers crossed. You know, and somehow, magically, that gets us out of the oath that we had made. So, again, in one sense, the religious leaders, they were trying to follow the letter of the law, but Jesus pointed out something much deeper. Um, they were wrong if they allowed for the breaking of any oath, and here's why. God hears every oath that we make, every promise that we make, every word that we say. God hears it. And we're responsible before him for what we have said. So the hard issue here is that we should be honest in everything that we do. Now think about this. Why do people make oaths at all? What are they trying to do? They're trying to enhance their appearance of being truthful, right? We human beings aren't known for always being truthful, so we think that if we say something like, oh, I swear by the Lord, or by my grandmother's grave, or, you know, cross my heart, we think that it makes us look more truthful. When in actuality, I think, in some ways, a lot of people give an oath because they're actually intentionally going to say something deceptive, and they're trying to make themselves look as if they are truthful. So the problem is, actually there's a couple problems. One is that we're just not very truthful in and of ourselves, we human beings as a race. Think about all the lies throughout all of human history. And, and part of the problem, it's, it's our heart problem, this heart issue of not being truthful people. And the second problem is we don't have really any authority to claim the, the power of God in our oath. I... I don't have the authority to take God's name for something that I'm going to say. And, and I think that's why God is saying, you know, not by, don't swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Not even by your head. Because you can't make one hair white or black. And, and it looks as if Jesus even says, don't even say I'll do that if you don't plan on doing it. Let your yes be your yes. See, if you're not a truthful person, taking an oath isn't going to change that. And what Jesus says plainly in verse 37 is that our oath-taking can actually spring not from pure motive, but from the evil one. So, again, our oath, just simply taking an oath doesn't increase our truthfulness. If we want to be seen as truthful people, what we need to do is to live honest lives. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't think it's that oaths in and of themselves are wrong. It's just that we tend to use them wrong. So instead of resorting to oaths, we should, we should be such trustworthy people that our yes is all we need, or our no is all that we need. Okay, so I think that's the teaching here on oaths. But if that's the teaching, it leaves me with a couple questions. One question would be, why then in the Bible does God use oaths? You can see places in the Bible where God resorts to taking an oath. And then secondly, is it wrong for us to take an oath in a court of law? Okay, so let's address the first question first. Why in the Bible does God use oaths? Well, like I said earlier, I don't think that oaths in and, in and of themselves are wrong. I think it's the motives that we attach to them that are wrong. 
And it's the lies behind what we're maybe trying to do with them that are wrong. But God, being completely truthful, he doesn't have that problem. So for God to take an oath by himself is very appropriate for him to do because he is always truthful. Okay, I think that kind of clears that one up. Uh, and then the second question, is it wrong for us to take an oath in court? Well, let me tell you a little bit of my journey on this one. I'm going to tell you a story. I think you'll find it to be an interesting story. But um, back in 2005, uh, I, I went off to seminary, and Christine and I moved to the suburbs of Illinois, a uh, suburb of Chicago, to a, a village called Mundelein. Sounds, kind of, you know, they call it a village. And uh, there were some things about this village that I didn't know. One of them, for example, if you want to park your car anywhere overnight in the village of Mundelein, even in your own parking lot that that you know, we owned our own space in the parking lot. Even if you want to park there, you had to buy a parking permit. Now, they were nice. They would give you a 30-day grace period. I didn't know that part either. But uh, this $12 parking permit that everybody in the city had to buy if you want to park your car overnight with a 30-day grace period. On day 31, we got a ticket on our car because we didn't have this permit that we didn't know that we needed. And you know how much the ticket was? 50 bucks. $12 permit. We didn't have it. One day late. 50 bucks was the fine. And I went to the police station I'm like, come on, are you kidding me? One day late, can there be some grace here? I didn't even know about this. I said, how was I supposed to know about this law? And they said, well, we have a sign on the city hall like in our, in our lobby. Are you kidding me? I said, is there anything I can do? This just seems ridiculous to me. And they said, well, yeah, you can go to court. I'm like, oh. But, you know, poor seminary students just starting off. 50 bucks, okay. So actually what I did is I went first and I bought the parking permit that I was supposed to buy, put that up on my car, and then I went to court. And when I went to court, I was like 10th on the docket. And memory serves me correct, all nine cases in front of me had to do with marijuana. So <laughs> I felt a little bit out of place here, and it's all these, it was like all these teenage boys, one after one, and they were pretty much all the same. They, they walked up there with their head hung low. Their parents had their arm around them. And, and the judge says to them, do you know what you've done is wrong? They're saying, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you try, will you promise to try to do better? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, judge. And, and then the judge did something. I don't know if he gave them a fine. I don't remember exactly what happened. And then I come up with my case for this parking ticket. And, and I told the judge my whole story. I said, I even went and bought the parking permit just you know, right after I learned that I needed it. And he said, okay. I'm going to put you under oath now. And I'm like, whoa, you know, right away I'm thinking, oath, I don't know if I'm supposed to take an oath. And I'm also thinking, you didn't make any of those marijuana people take an oath. Why put a $12 parking, ticket, or parking permit? So he, he said to me, do you swear? Did, and I'm just kind of looking, and I'm like, ah, and I tried to mumble, I, I don't really feel, and he said, he stopped me, and he got angry. He said, do you swear by the... And he went on, and I just kind of mumbled again, I, I, I just, I, I don't know if I... And he, one more time, he, he looked angry at me. Do you swear to tell the truth? And that time I was just kind of silent. And, and he said, then he got a nice look on his face, and he said, is it for religious reasons that you do not want to take an oath? And I said, yes. He said, okay. And he came up with an alternative, something that I could say yes to, and I said, yes, I got the parking permit. And he said, fine, you're, you don't have to pay that $50 fine. So, anyways... I, but the question for me was, okay, they, they're making me take an oath, and Jesus says, uh, I tell you, do not swear at all. Well, I have since changed my mind on that topic, and, and let me tell you why. Uh, I think what Jesus is telling us here is that we shouldn't be people who have to resort to oaths to make ourselves look more truthful. 
But it's a different story when a civil authority demands an oath from us. And even Jesus responded to an oath in his trial. In Matthew 26, Jesus had been silent during a time of questioning. And then the chief priest charged him with an oath in verse 63. The high priest uh, demanded an answer whether he was the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus then broke his silence and gave a truthful answer. Now, honest men don't need to give an oath. Jesus didn't need to give an oath. But I think that one of the things that we can understand from the Bible is that God has placed authorities in place. And, and this is one of the things that our authorities do. So I think it's okay. I don't, and, and the reason it's okay for us is because we're not the ones who are invoking this. But if somebody asks us to do one, I think it's okay for us to do it. The main point, though, behind what Jesus is saying in this is that we should be honest always. And really, I don't think that Jesus is talking about a courtroom setting here. I think he's talking about our everyday life. How honest are you? Do you do what you say you would do? Do you say what you mean and mean what you say? Again, that's the heart issue. So let me just ask an, uh, an application question. Are you an honest person? Do you have a track record in your life of telling the truth? Are you building up that credit in your life so that people can look at you and say, yeah, if he said that, you can trust him. If she said she'll do that, she will do it. Husbands, your honey-do list, how many things are on there that you said that you would do? Let's do those things. <laughs> Why are the women laughing? Because <laughs> the, the men are all, yeah, I know. No, but you know, again, if you don't plan on doing it, then don't say you'll do it. But let's be honest people and let's do the things that we say. Actually, in, in preparation for this sermon, I finally, after like 10 years, mailed something to somebody that I have that belonged to him. And I was like, I just never got around to doing it. And, uh, we should be people who do what we say we do. And it's a, it's a heart issue of being honest. In Psalm 15, it talks about those people who can be near to God, and it says those who can be near to God are those who keep, he who keeps his oath even when it hurts. So let's be honest people. Build that reputation of being trustworthy. And that will have an influence on how we can actually bring the gospel message to other people. If we're not known as a truthful person, are they going to listen to us as we give the message about Jesus? Okay, let's go on to the, the next one. Um, I've entitled it Retribution. It's verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now in verse 38, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. Actually, in several places in the Old Testament, it says, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It was actually uh, meant to give fair retribution to criminals. So let's say that somebody had done something wrong and they go to a court of law. That law was set up so that there would be punishment. Not too much and not too little for the person who had offended. It was actually a very fair law. The problem, though, comes in when we demand retribution for every little wrong that happens to us or, or every little insult or every little thing that makes us go out of our way. Now, obviously, we want to be on the side of justice. And, and if somebody commits a crime, you know, it, the, the righteous, we understand that there should be justice for that crime. Uh, so again, just a side note here, I don't think that Jesus is against 
laws or courts or punishments, I, I think that his teaching here is really about our heart issues. And actually, I would go on to say in my side note that I think that God has established civil authorities to handle things like crime and punishment. And, and even nations, you know, this is a whole different topic that I don't even want to get into today, but um, sometimes it's right for a nation to stop another nation from doing something evil. Um, but really, we're not talking about nations, and we're not talking about laws and courts. We're talking about what's going on in our hearts. And allow me to explain then the four scenarios that Jesus mentions here in verses 39 to 42. The first one I think a lot of people misunderstand. When Jesus says, someone strikes you on the, cheek, on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I don't think he's talking about physical abuse here. I don't think he's saying if somebody punches you, then you know, get up off the floor and then ask him to punch you again. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Most scholars agree that he's probably talking about insults. So that the strike on the cheek would kind of be this backhanded slap to the cheek that would be an, an insult more than a, a physical blow. Uh, so let me be clear. I don't think that Jesus is telling us to submit to any and every form of physical abuse. In fact, in John 10:39, Jesus escaped the grasp of those who wanted to stone him. So let's just be very clear on that. But rather, what I think Jesus is saying here is that when we are insulted, that we shouldn't feel the need to insult back. It's so easy for us in our human nature, and I'm sure we all know this, somebody insults you, what's your natural response? Either to defend yourself or to insult back, right? That's what the sinful nature wants to get us to do, to escalate that argument. And, and I just want to ask, you know, for those of you who are married, how do you do in that? Are, are you somebody who, if, if one person slips and gives out an insult, how do you respond? Hopefully, we can be people who bite our tongues or even turn the other cheek and say, oh really, is, is there anything else that you'd like me to understand? So I, I, I did a bad job on the dishes. Tell me what else. Uh, well, maybe. When, if there's something else you'd like to tell me. Uh, yeah. But the, the heart issue here is that I think that we should not be people who return insult for insult. And actually, Jesus set a great example here. Uh, Jesus took on so many insults. None of them were deserved. But he took them. And, and Jesus actually went even further and did take that physical abuse. When it was his time to endure that physical abuse... He endured it knowing it was the Lord's will for him. And there may, may be times in our lives where we are called on to endure some physical abuse, some persecution that God may want us to endure. Okay, then verse 40. This is a countercultural one for any culture. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Basically, he says if someone wants to take your shirt, give him your coat too. Now, basically, all I want to say on this one is Sticking up for yourself isn't the ideal. If someone, you know, wants your coat, you should, hey, I have a right to that. Really, we should be looking out for the best interest of the other person, seeking to love them. Uh, then verse 41, uh, talking about going, the, this is where we get our phrase, go the extra mile. Uh, many of you probably know this, but it's talking about the Roman policy. In, in Roman law, uh, it was legal for a Roman soldier to commandeer a civilian and make him carry a load. So let's say that a, a military commander gave a soldier this job of carrying a load from one base to another base. It was legal for that soldier to find a civilian and say, here, you carry it for a mile. And what Jesus is saying, if somebody asks you to do that for a mile, go with him two miles. And this one is hard for us. You know, 
most of the time, maybe we don't have a problem doing those things that we're supposed to do. But what about when somebody asks you to go a little bit further? Or you see, oh, it's my time to step. Nobody's uh, doing the dishes. Oh, it's my turn to do it. Um, nobody's signed up to be a greeter. Okay, I can, do, I can you know, be here earlier and, and do that. Whatever it might be. Are you willing to go the extra mile to show the love of Christ? Then verse 42. This one can be really hard. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You ever met, <coughs> excuse me, you ever met a needy person? Ever met somebody who just keeps asking you for things? The teaching of the Bible is that we are to help. How needy are we before God? Somebody once asked me, you know, when, when is it right to stop giving to a needy person? You know what, one of my, this isn't my only answer, but one of my answers is when they stop being as needy as I was before Christ, that's when I can stop giving to them. You see, the point here is that we really should seek to help people. Now, a little bit of realism helps here as well. It doesn't say that we have to get, give everything they ask for. Uh, the, the theologian Augustine, back about 1,600 years ago, said, uh, give to everyone that asks, not give everything to him that asks. But our heart behind this should be to help. And in all of these scenarios, the question is, how will we respond? And in most of these cases, it might feel like you have been wronged. But Jesus said in verse 39, do not resist an evil person. He's not just saying, be this way to the people who are nice to you. He's saying, even if it's an evil person, that we are to show this kind of love to them, and this kind of restraint, and this kind of helpfulness. And again, Jesus set the example. He didn't answer insult with insult. He gave of himself to serve others. He even died on the cross for his enemies. Now, our normal, natural human response is to answer insult with insult and to look out for our own interests. But think about it this way. If that's how God treated us, we would be eternally condemned. If he answered insult with insult, at our first sin, we would have been condemned to eternity apart from him. But he loves us more than that. So in that love that God has shown to us through Jesus Christ, we are now to let that love overflow to those around us and serve them. But that's tough. It's countercultural. It's against the sinful nature. But vengeance is God's, not ours. Romans 12:19 says, "Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay," says the Lord. We have a higher standard. We don't have to fight back. We can we can be kind to people and show the love of God to them. We can seek their best interest, overcoming evil with good, like Jesus did. And we do this in love, so that people can see the beauty of the gospel message. And really, all three of these passages today have to do with how we're going to be able to communicate the gospel message. And that leads me on to my next point, verse, or, excuse me, uh, verses 43 to 48. We're going to look at love for enemies. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
How do you feel about your enemies? Do you love them? Now, without God's teaching on this topic, that would be a ridiculous question. It's a no-brainer. How do you feel about your enemies? Well, I hate them. They're my enemy. Duh. (laughs) But God has something different to say. And, and, and it's interesting because even the religious leaders of Jesus' day tried to change what God said to add that part about hating enemies. Love your neighbor is very much from God. Uh, in Leviticus 19.18, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus later would go on to say that that is the second greatest commandment in all the law. But these people added on that part about hate your enemy. That, that was nowhere in the Bible. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon called that little part about hate your enemy a parasitical growth. So we have this beautiful, healthy command to love your neighbor as yourself and somehow like a parasite attaching to it came this part about hating your enemy. But that's not from God. The heart issue here is that we are to love not only our neighbors but our enemies too. And by the way, that teaching wasn't new. You can find it in the Old Testament. In Exodus 23, 4, it says, If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. So we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Prayer is a great way to show love, by the way. Sometimes our enemies or our persecutors won't want to receive a kindness from us. Even if you were to try to do something for them, they might not want it. But prayer is one of the best ways that we can show love to our enemies. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a a German pastor living during the times of of Nazi Germany, he he was against all those evils that the Nazi Germans were doing, and he was there preaching against it. He knew a lot about enemies. He ended up being killed by his enemies. And you know what he said about enemies? This is great. He said, through our prayer, we go to our enemy stand by his side and plead to him for God. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't think it's that we need to pray that they would have success in their wicked endeavors. That, that would be ridiculous. But we should be praying for them for their biggest need. Now, what's their biggest need? To, to realize their need for Jesus. Their need for forgiveness and eternal life. So in prayer, we come alongside our enemies. We show love to them. And in doing so, it says in verse 45 that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Why does it say that? Because as children of our Father, we are supposed to become more like Him. How does God view His enemies? With love. God's heart for the wicked is that He loves them. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He could do it differently. Remember in Exodus some of the plagues, they were like smart bombs. The the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and God sent some of those plagues that only hit the Egyptians and not the Israelites. God knows how to do that. He could send rain only on the people who seek him. But he doesn't. He sends rain on the unrighteous too. Do you know why he does that? Because he loves them. And actually, in Acts 14, verses 15 through 17, Paul reasons that God does that as a testimony to the gospel message. He says, you can look at the rain. Okay, everybody who the rain falls on, that's who God loves. So who are we supposed to love? Our enemies. Now again, think about this from God's perspective with us. In Romans 5, verses 8 and 10, it says that Christ died for sinners, and it says that Christ died for God's enemies. The good news of the gospel message is that God loves us even though we have offended him multiple times 
with our sin and our rebellion against Him. Think about that. Every single one of us sins against God. And how does God view us? With, with love. What kind of love? The love that would allow Him to send His only Son to die for our sins. So that all who receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord can have complete forgiveness and eternal life. That is the gospel message. That is the message that every one of us needs to know. That, that, that means every one of us in here. We need to know that our salvation comes not from the good things that we try to do, not from being a good enough person. The Bible says we were God's enemies. Salvation comes from, from, from the forgiveness that came from Jesus' blood shed for us. That is the message of God's love for us. It's the message that we need to know for ourselves, receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, and it should be the message that we bring out to the community, even to our enemies. The message of love. We are to love as Jesus did. In 1 John 4, 10 and 11, it says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, it's not like we had earned God's love, so we said, okay, finally, now I'll send Jesus. No. We were sinners, and God sent His Son. And then John went on to say, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So as we love our enemies, the gospel message shines forth. It's like the sun rising on the evil. And again, Jesus is the example, showing love to enemies by praying for them on the cross, by, by showing love to those people who hated him during his earthly ministry. You see, it's not enough just to show love to those who love us. I think that's the point of verses 46 and 47. The people of this world, even the most wicked person in this world, knows how to do good things for people who are good to them. It, it doesn't take any spirituality at all to do something good for somebody who's good to you. Jesus is calling us to something more. Actually, that word in verse, verse 47, there's, a, there's an exceeding nature that is supposed to show in our love. We're, we're supposed to love more than the, than the world around us does. But if we want to live like this, we need God's help. We need the Holy Spirit filling us. We need to continue to live in Jesus Christ. I've been thinking a lot about our benediction verses here lately. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. It starts off, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. It's not just a, a one-time deal where we receive Him. There is a continuing to live in Him. The Bible also tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't love our enemies in our own power. We're supposed to be continually filled with the Spirit, continuing to live in Jesus Christ and let God's love flow through us. So train yourself to love your enemies. As you're continuing to walk with Jesus, train yourself to pray for those that you don't like. Have, have you done that lately? Pick that person you don't like and instead of just telling somebody, I don't like that person, instead talk to God and say, I... You know, I pray for them, that, that they would know Jesus. But you'll need God's help, like I've been saying. We don't do this on our own. If we're going to love like God did, we need his help. And we are to love as Jesus did. So application question here. How do you love? Do you find yourself reacting according to the sinful nature? It's so easy to react with hatred to our enemies. 
Or do you see yourself being transformed by God's love? I hope you do. That, that's the point. You know, not that we pat ourselves on the back, but that really we should be able to see God transforming us, molding us into different people. Okay, we're almost done, but not quite done yet because there's one more verse, and it's a very difficult one. Not, it's not difficult theologically. It's difficult in our hearts. Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, it's, it's a little bit difficult theologically because does Jesus really expect us to have some level of perfection? Doesn't he know that we're sinners? Well, yes, he does. But here's what he's saying. The standard here is the perfection of God. If you're going to ask yourself, what kind of a life should I seek to live? Well, look to the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. Our standard is not just what the world will let us get away with. Our standard isn't, you know, pick ten neighbors around you and, and see if you're you know, as good as the average. You know, you guys get this from Otter Tail Power. They send you, here's how your home does in average, you know, compared to the other ten homes around you, similar size, here's how you're doing. Oh, good, I'm, you know, my line is somewhere over there. I'm doing all right. That's not how it is with God. That's not our standard. Our standard is the perfection of God and we should seek to live in every instance as God would have us live. Now, like I said at the beginning, we all fall short and we shouldn't read these passages and say, yep, 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 yeah, oh, okay, pass the test. I think we should look at this passage and say, oh, my heart needs some work. And if you realize that there's a sin, then just go to God in repentance. Praise the Lord, Jesus came to forgive us of our sins and he knows about our sins, so we might as well just tell him and ask for forgiveness and ask for strength to live the kind of life that he wants you to live. And again, Jesus is the example. We are to continue to live in him. And we are to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17 is a prayer where Paul prays that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That's that through God's spirit. That, that, that strengthening in our hearts is to happen so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, it's a great prayer if you want to memorize those verses and pray it for yourself and even for your enemies, maybe. We're called to live by a higher standard, to honor God, to let the gospel shine through. Those are two of the highest goals in my life, to honor God in all that I do and to bring his gospel message to the world. Are those goals in your life? Honoring God, it's like we either, we either honor God or we dishonor him. What would you rather do? I want to honor God with the things that I do. So I'm called to go the extra mile, to love my enemies, to be a truthful person. And I also want to bring the gospel message to people around me. So I want God to work on my heart so that when I interact with these people who don't yet know Christ, that they can see Christ and not me. I think one of the last verses of the, one of the, the last song that we sang said that they, something like that they may know him, that they might forget the channel. That's us. We're just the channel through which the water flows. That they would forget the channel and see only him. That's the kind of lives that we're supposed to live. Honoring God, bringing the gospel message to the world. But we'll need God's help with that. We'll need to continue in Christ and we'll need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? God, we do want to live that kind of life, life where we honor you in all that we do, a life where we bring your gospel message to those around us. 
But God, we need your strength for that. So would you please fill us with the Holy Spirit to honor you in all that we do. And would you please open the doors that we might proclaim your gospel message to people, that they might come to know you. So God, help us to be truthful people who let our yes be our yes. Help us not to respond with wickedness to evil people around us. And help us even to go further and to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And God, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you. You are perfect. And I pray that we would seek to live lives that honor you. God, have your way in our hearts. And again, we pray for your strength and the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.